You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves in the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Each week, Roger is joined by Joe and Vince. Listen to the show for any length of time knows we are all fans of card games be it traditional trading card games new digital trading card games or the new influx of games that are using cards in a unique way we've even gone so far as to see their influence in mmos such as in final fantasy in rpgs such as the witcher and other games as well and then we have the nice blends like armello and duelist a new one as well there's a lot of cool things coming out right now so we're going to touch on not just the traditional card games, but also some of the new stuff that is currently out or coming out soon. So this should actually be quite a bit of fun. We will start off with the granddaddy of them all, and that's Magic the Gathering. Not so much to talk about the game, but there was a very, very good uh, talk at GDC 2016 from Mark Rosewater, who's been working there for 20 years. And what he did is he gave a presentation where he gave 20 lessons that he's learned over the years while working at Wizards of the Coast. And we're not going to go through, obviously, the entire presentation because it was fairly long. However, I have to say myself, as someone who appreciates what goes on behind the scenes in so much as what we've seen for trading card games in particular, but also someone who has kind of messed around with the idea of game development with, with my son and whatnot, doing different things. I really appreciated this because of, again, these lessons that he's imparting, imparting from things that he's learned along the way. Now, Vince, you said you watched some of it. What did you think of it, though? I thought it was a pretty good example of just why Magic is as successful as it is. I mean, so many other card games have come and gone or, you know, stuck around but not quite reached the level of success that Magic has. And it's kind of what we were talking about in the pre-show. The reason Magic has really boomed in the last couple of years after fading out for a little while is their willingness to change and to see what their fans and what the industry is responding to, whereas a lot of other game developers, you know, it's like, nope, this is our game. Take it or leave it. But it, you can't you don't stay around for 20 years without budging a little bit and, you know, acclimating your system to the changing climate that it's being played in. I think that's true, though, across all of their games. Wizards of the Coast is just very responsive mm-hmm. to that type of stuff. One of my favorite stories is uh, a friend of mine who... Uh, we all know about like all the other gaming conventions, but they also have retailer conventions where companies like Wizards of the Coast or any any game producer will invite uh, retailers or other industry people in and kind of have like a day where they all talk to each other, almost like uh, a GDC for non-video games. And it's kind of cool. And uh, my friend told me a story about one a couple years ago where – uh, I forgot who it was, but one of the higher ups at Wizards uh, of the Coast walked onto the stage and was like, let me tell you everything we fucked up this year. And he <laughs> went through and there was it was completely candid, went through list by list by list by list. And this is back when like D&D 4th edition was out, when magic was starting to tank. And he was like, and here's what we're going to do about it. And they put all these incentives down for retailers, but then talked about how they were restructuring every single game based off of all the feedback that they received from their players. And what's interesting about that story to me is stuff like this, where you see that huge resurgence in magic and everything. And you see how how that as a company, they took that huge lull and just pushed and, and use it to kind of propel themselves back up to the top. What I liked about this too is that he is someone that has made it a point to continue learning and talks about various courses that he's taken, everything from psychology to marketing and all kinds of different things. And what it is about those that he was then able to apply to various sets that came out in different years. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of what he's saying is not magic specific. It's 
business specific. It's about being in the business of making games and what it is that you can do to be successful. And it's not always about trying to be the best or, or, or things like that. It's understanding your audience. It's understanding what's going to happen once your audience gets their hands on your product and what they're going to do with it, which is completely out of your control and allowing that lack of control. And yet at the same time, also not being afraid to displease some in order to please others. It's like, I'm kind of comparing it to what we're seeing with Blizzard doing with Hearthstone, where they're taking those first steps towards that of, you know, okay, here's what's working. Here's what's not. But I mean, it's those really awkward baby hasn't learned how to walk yet steps. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting to see, you know, basically everything he's talking about playing out, you know, in real time now for us that are paying attention. Yeah. Well, that Hex as well has been doing the same because they've been around even longer right mm-hmm. now they are on their next set and we're starting to see a lot of those things as well just to quickly go through the list here i'm just going to actually go through it just because it is important we're not going to talk about everything individually but just so that you know so the, the the it starts off with fighting against human nature is a losing battle which is obvious and then he goes on to aesthetics matter and resonance is important Make use of piggybacking, which is using existing knowledge. And he talked about that in a couple of different points, wherein it's about using things that people already know. Like one of the cards, he said, was a Trojan horse card. And when they decided to be cute and different and make it a cat instead... People didn't get it. They didn't like the card. They got nothing but bad reviews about it and feedback. They changed it back to a horse. Everybody loved it. And it's that (laughs) kind of thing. Use existing knowledge. Don't fight against it. Uh, Don't confuse interest with fun. Understand what emotion your game is trying to evoke. Allow the players the ability to make the game personal. The details where the player fall in love with your game. The details are where the, the players fall in love with your game. There they talked about one of a throwaway card that they included this little character on it that all of a sudden people went batshit crazy and were making fan arts out of it, stuffed toys out of it. So they started actually incorporating that character in background art. In, in cards and things so that if you're paying attention, oh, there's this little key. So yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, allow your players to have a sense of ownership. Leave room for your players to explore. If everyone likes your game, but no one loves it, it will fail. Don't design to prove that you can do something. Make the fun part, make the fun part also the correct strategy to win. Don't be afraid to be blunt. Design the, the components for the audience it's intended for. Be more afraid of boring your players than challenging them. You don't have to change much to change everything. Restrictions breed creativity. Your audience is good at recognizing problems and bad at solving them. And then all of the lessons are connected. It's a very good presentation if you're into this kind of thing. If not, you will be bored. But if you like seeing how the magic is made, no pun intended, you will really like it. I'll make sure to put the link in the show notes and for anybody who is interested in, in, in watching it. Yeah. The one in there that I really like is the don't be afraid or be more afraid of boring your players yeah. than challenging them. And, you know, you look at modern game development, not just, you know, card games, but in general, which is what this speech was dedicated towards general game development. And it seems like a lot of companies are afraid of challenging. You know, there's a limit. Not every game needs to be Dark Souls. But as you can see, there is definitely some uh, something to be said about providing a challenge that there's a certain a group of your of your fan base that's going to be appealed or that that's going to appeal to and that's something that's really missing from a lot of games these days is that challenge and like for me like the lack of a challenge is boring for a lot of points i agree i agree and i like as well how again it was finding that balance and and he spoke about that as well where when he was talking about your your audience is good at recognizing problems but bad at solving them so it's understanding that you really have to give <laughs> away a lot of solving. Yeah, really. <laughs> you have to let go a lot of your attachment and ego with what it is that you're doing and understand that people are going to find ways of fucking this up that you never thought about, or they'll find things that are fucked up about what you've worked. So you got to take everything that they say with a grain of sand, but de- or salt, I should say, but definitely 
definitely be paying attention and listen to them. Again, great presentation. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Shadowverse? <sighs> you didn't like it. Well, I mean, there's not a whole heck of a lot of information out there about the game, no. especially in English, seeing as it's you know being translated from a Japanese game. But the first thing you can't help but think about it is it's Hearthstone because it's Hearthstone. Game mechanics, 95% Hearthstone. The, the what appearance. Is that, that cool video with the flying dragon in the smoke? It's not Hearthstone, no. <laughs> so it's... Yeah, but Hearthstone didn't make up that game style either. So no, that's a thing to but, keep in but mind. The, the, the specific mechanics and the appearance, like it's, it, it, you can't look at it and not see Hearthstone is what it is. What it is. Like remember see, that time I had that interface that made you really think of Magic the Gathering, their online play, because it totally was that entire experience. It's kind of like that. See, I see so much similarity between most card games that that's not necessarily what I see. I'll definitely see similarities and things like that, but I don't see point blank a a rip on it just because, once again, Hearthstone didn't invent that play style either. I really like this because I like the anime style. I like that. uh, Oh, I'm not saying it's not doing its unique thing with that aesthetic, but it's. It's definitely, at least for me, the the prevalent and most obvious you know, thing I notice about it. Okay, but I mean, you know, what you're looking, you know, the the one new mechanic they have is that you know you have in addition to your mana gems, you have evolution gems that you can use to upgrade your cards when you put them into battle, giving them new artwork. Which you know, let's be honest, mostly just means more TNA. <laughs> but you know, well, that, we did that, say anime style, yeah. That is a, an interesting new mechanic and a new spin on you know, a tried and true formula. And also that it seems that it's going to have more of a story focus with seven unique characters that are each going to have their own story mode in addition to the traditional just card battle. And see, that's one of the things that I did like. And Mm -hmm. in terms of the anime style, I actually like that out of these seven stories, seven characters, most of them were were female characters, only two Mm -hmm. were male, and only one fit that anime stereotype of the buxom blonde woman or they all fit woman. an anime stereotype but yes there's only one that's over the top which that's fine you yeah. know that that has to be in there somewhere let's be honest well considering that one of the male characters is also showing a lot of cleavage it was like all right fine it's fair for both so i i honestly didn't mind the art style which is saying a lot when it's anime with me yeah, it's something we've talked about so many times. There's nothing wrong with, you know, having a little bit of sexiness in your game. The problem is when that's the only thing in your game. And from what we've seen, at least so far, they're striking a, a balance here with Shadowverse. Yeah, I, I'm I, hopeful of myself. Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to need to see more, though. It's just now entering its beta phase on iOS and Android, and it's uh, it's on the green light for Steam. I don't think I don't know if it's actually been greenlit yet, but uh we should be seeing more of it over this the rest of this year. Soon. Well, actually, before that, they're looking at a mid-June launch. I thought mid-June is when it was hitting open beta. No, no, no. They've been doing a beta already. Mm-hmm. Well, I know so, it's been in closed beta, but... Yeah, because they're talking about a mid-June launch. Oh, okay. I must so have misread that then. That's kind of why I'm excited to see it sooner than later. So, yeah. I, again, it's one of those where I'm I'm cautiously hopeful about what it'll be. I'm not I'm not thinking I'll be spending a crap load of money on it, but if it has any kind of questing quote unquote mechanics that allow you to earn their in game currency to spend on cards, then yeah, I'll play it probably every day. If yeah. it's any good. And then we're looking at we got a little bit more news for Elder Scrolls Legends. And we talked about this a little bit before, and we got more information in terms of how the combat is going to work to a certain degree. Much like every other card game as well, they are using different keyword abilities. They're actually going to have 12 of them. And I like how they listed them all off, and you got everything from Prophecy to Ward to Shackle to Lethal and and, and whatnot. It, It has that feel of Elder Scrolls right in those keywords kind of thing. And yet it's very common still. Obviously, Guard is your taunt, provoke kind of character. And then they were talking again more about how it's going to work with the lanes because you have two lanes. So again, we have similar to Duel of Champions where it has the lanes. 
And that creates a lot more strategy because you have to figure out it's not just about dropping a creature down on the table and then you could use it any way you want. You need to plan who are you trying to block or are you trying to work your way through to hit their opponent directly and things like that. And it's something that I've missed from Duel of Champions because we really haven't seen that in other card games. So I'm that's one of the things that I like. And then going back to comparing it to other card games, it also has that Hearthstone where um, game style wherein you do attack either the creature directly or you attack the person, the champion directly, depending on if there is a card with guard or things like that. So from what we're hearing, it's a nice blend of existing card style, card gameplay style kind of things. And I really, I'm really digging it. And the fact that they're saying there's going to be different modified lane types, even like an example they gave was a shadow lane where the creatures that start in that lane start with cover. So they can't be attacked the turn they come into play. So that means then that depending on what you're playing, whether it's a PVE PVP or constructed game type or whatever they haven't released all the details there's going to be yet more strategy for you to figure out where to put your creatures and how to progress and that was pretty cool yeah i like that uh especially with the lane mechanic you know it's it's a way to take a mechanically simple game and i'm not saying this is you know paint by numbers but it's not also you know magic or hex level of complexity but making it that much more strategic it's it's you're getting a lot more mileage out of what, what you have with that one simple edition yeah yeah definitely okay let's move on to the uh, a board game slash card game and we talked about this before and that's the dresden files now this is actually nearing its kickstarter there's 70 hours left to go as of this recording they were asking for forty-eight thousand, and they are at four hundred and thirty-four thousand six hundred and three dollars i'm not even remotely surprised because it's dresden files that's an insane amount of money though I just backed it today. I'd been waiting <laughs> and waiting and waiting because it's a, it's still a nice chunk of change, especially with the currency as it is right now. It's not just 70 bucks. It's more so. But I did back it at the $69 one so that I can get the three expansions as well. Now, this we're going to talk about for a little while because Vince got to play it. So, Vince, give us a rundown on what you thought, how it came to be, and what... Uh, what your your thoughts getting out of once you were done the game were about were about it and if it's worth getting? Well, I mean, first of all, shout outs to our good buddy and listener Malagash because he's the one who first told me about the game. So like, I know he was talking to you, Joe. Had you heard about it before he mentioned it? Yeah, actually, I had um, kinda. I heard that it was coming. Um, I didn't know any of the details on it. It was more of a, hey, there's going to be a Dresden Files board game based off of the fate system of the RPG that, you know, is already kind of a thing. Okay. But that's about all I heard. And then I, remember I was looking at it and going, the first thing I, I saw was that this was a very good Kickstarter. And, you know, by good, I mean, A, it there's a overwhelming chance that it's actually going to be a successful campaign not just from a funding standpoint from actually getting the product because as i said mechanically the entire game is there all they're asking money for is to finish up artwork and print the damn thing so it it's it's definitely not going to be one of those vaporware kickstarters and while yes the prices were more than i was initially willing to spend it's not that there wasn't the value there. Like $69, you're getting $69 worth of stuff just in physical goods that are for playing the game. Yeah, Looking at you, Dark, Stole, Dark Souls, where that board game is really expensive because of all the physical goods that aren't really necessary to play the game. <laughs> well, Evil Head has a really good track record, too, with everything that they put out. Like, I, I really haven't heard anything bad from any of the Evil Hat Kickstarters that they've done in the last, I don't know, six years or whatever it is. Like they've just been putting out gold. They know where they know where values at. Mm -hmm. So for anybody that's not familiar with the Dresden Files, the core concept is Harry Dresden is a wizard in modern day Chicago. That's what it says on his business card. Wizard. He functions more as a private investigator. But with that, you know, magical and supernatural side to it, it's been a very successful series of books. I think they're up to 
book 15 with book 16 currently being worked on. That and is correct. I, I know Joe, Roger, and I all really enjoy the books. Roger, how many of them have you read at this point? I've only read a couple of them, actually. Okay. So I I will <laughs> I was telling Karen today because she's actually read more of them than I have. She loves them as well. And we have some of them audio as well, so she's been listening to them too. But I was saying like we have until March of next year <laughs> <laughs> to read as many as we can to be prepped for this. And that's what's cool about the game, where if you know nothing about Dresden, you can enjoy the game for being a game. But if you're familiar with the books, familiar with the characters, you get a lot out of it because it, they do a phenomenal job of replicating the feeling of the books and the characters in the actual game, which I mean, I'll explain a little more later. But that's truly a phenomenal accomplishment. You know what I'm most disappointed about? It's not Paul Blackthorne on the cover. <laughs> Some dude with long hair. It's like, that's not Dresden. I don't want freaking Paul Blackthorne on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> so the game itself is very simplistic. Uh, you have each uh, game that you play is based on a themed deck of one of the books. Uh, each deck has 12 cards plus, you know, one special showdown card. And they're dealt out on a mat, two rows, uh, ranging one through six. And those are the actual ranges that your abilities can affect them at. Each player uh, picks a character. It can be played with one to five characters or one to five players. Uh, that said, if you're playing by yourself, you're going to be playing multiple characters. And it actually scales very well with larger player group sizes because, as we said, uh, the group I played with, we had five players, which meant we only had four cards each. So it's not you're not going to be getting extra. You're, you're not reducing the difficulty by playing with more people because each individual person is less powerful than they would be with less players involved. Uh, it uh, uses the fate system. You have fate points that you spend to activate your abilities and then you can earn back fate points by discarding cards out of your hand which again if you only have four cards in your hand every decision you make as to whether you should play a card or discard it becomes very very important uh, it also bases off the uh, fate rpg system with the actual fate dice where if a card has a cost of two plus one fate die it's going to cost two fate and you roll the die it's a six-sided die that either has well it has two pluses two minuses and two blanks on it so if it's a two plus one die and you roll a plus you actually have to spend three fate to play that card or vice versa if it rolls a minus you actually get it for only one fate uh in one of the games we played we got very very lucky with our dice rolls and just absolutely smoked it so as far as what you're getting in the base game, in addition to all the goodies uh, that you need to play it, all the tokens and the board and all that, you're getting five characters, uh, Harry, of course, Karen Murphy, Michael Carpenter, Susan Rodriguez, and the Alphas, Billy and Georgia. In addition to that, you're getting the first five books of the series, Stormfront, Full Moon, Grave Peril, Summer Night, and Death Masks, as well as the Side Jobs deck, which is a larger deck of randomized cards. So even if you've played through all the games multiple times, you know, you have that random deck that's always going to be throwing you new challenges as well. Based on how much you played and what you saw of it, how much replayability are you looking at once you've gone through each of the decks? Quite a bit because like I said every time you play it, it's going to be a little different just because of the randomness of dealing the cards as well as all the characters available to you. Uh, when we played, we actually had all the expansion stuff. So we had six more books and six more characters available to us. So oh, nice. I can see being a lot of replay value, not just that, but you know, the game's going to play very differently depending on how many people you're playing with. Like the, um, the guy that was actually demoing the game for us, Justin, I forget his last name. I'm sorry, but he's actually the legal counsel for Evil Hat. And he was, you know, he was in town and one of the shops that he was at was one of the alpha backers. So, you know, they invited him over and... Yeah, he said he's he's not even a huge Dresden fan. Like he's only read a couple of the books and he also doesn't play a lot of games with a group. He's a solo player and he's had so much fun of trying different combinations of characters and books just playing by himself. I see that I have a hard time understanding how you'd have that much fun playing this type of game solo. Because at the end of the day, it's strategic, like it's not me and you and Joe each playing our individual games. You have to work together. 
to it's, come up with a battle plan. So either multiple people or a single person, it's still going to be the same concept of a game, just how many people are involved in the strategy. Right. It sounds very similar to like uh, how Legendary Encounters and Sentinels of the Multiverse kind of force you to work together. And while like one player can play multiple decks, so to speak, uh, in those games, it seems like that's a kind of a similar uh, almost set up like that. Mm hmm. So when we did the demo, uh, I was there for about two and a half hours and we played four games. And a lot of that time was just learning how to play the actual game. So it plays very quickly, but it was so much fun because, uh, let's see, the first game, somebody always has to play as Harry. Uh, beyond that, we had Michael Carpenter, I think Sonya and Ramirez. And of course, I had to call dibs on Butters because Butters is the best. <laughs> Uh, what's cool is that, again, each character has their own unique abilities. In addition to the cards you draw in your hand, you have talent, which is typically something that's uh, activated when you discard, and then a stunt, which is a one-time use special ability, and yeah, that's depending on who you're playing as. What's cool is you know, when you deal out, you have enemies, cases, advantages, and obstructions that are on the board. To win the game, you have to solve more cases than there are enemies left alive. So, for example, in Stormfront, there were four enemies in four cases. So the way we won was by solving two cases and killing three of the enemies. So we had two cases solved, only one enemy remaining. So that's how we won that particular game. But that was only on our second try because our first try we got absolutely wrecked because you know, we're still learning the game. So he said, OK, redeal the exact same game and play again with your new knowledge. And we knew more about the system. We, that's, that's the game where we also got really lucky on our dice rolls. So what you have is, yeah, typically enemies and cases are the more straight, most straightforward ones. You play cards to either deal damage to an enemy or find clues to a case. Once you have enough damage or clues, that card is resolved. You also have the advantages, which are you know, things straight out of the books. Like in Stormfront, it was the speed potion that Harry actually brews in that first book and he uses in one of the big battles which uh, allows you to draw a card and then have other people draw cards. Because when I said you pick up four cards, for the most part, those are your cards. There are very, very few opportunities throughout the game to actually draw more cards, which, again, brings this whole strategic element into effect. And then you have the obstacles, which are just that, the extra difficulty. Um, in our second game, which was based on the Full Moon book, the, t the two obstacles were absolutely brutal. But again, it's it makes sense within being a replication of the book. One of the obstacles was the uh, arrest warrant, which in the book, you know, that there's without ruining too much, you're basically working against the police as Harry. So until you remove the police obstructions, you actually can't damage some of the enemies because, you know, again, in the book, Harry could not pursue with the case until he had cleared up the the stuff at the police department so I get, it does such a great job with just a few cards replicating how it is uh the first game there is a case that you can solve relatively easily I, I forget exactly what it's called but a lot of the cards actually interact you solve this first case it gives you free extra clues on a second case you solve that second case and that's the only way you can actually damage the most powerful enemy. So it shows the trail through the book of Harry working on these smaller cases and eventually coming to the revelation of, you know, how to defeat the big bad. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's so much stuff that they do to replicate the feelings. Um, one of the ones he showed up, uh, I forget which, which game it was. I think it might've been blood rights with uh, count Ortega is the big bad in that game. Count Ortega is yep, blood rights. One of the most absolute badasses in the entire Dresden universe. Like he's, you know, a super powerful wizard and a vampire at the same time. <laughs> His special ability, you cannot deal damage to him unless you can deal five or more damage in a single hit. And as he says, there's only two or three cards in the entire game that can do that much damage. So unless you're playing the characters with those cards and if you draw those cards... You actually can't kill Count Ortega, hmm. which is exactly how it is in the book. Harry couldn't beat Count Ortega. Like he could take down his minions. He could, uh, you know, break things down around him, which is, is all you need to win the game. To win the game, you don't have to kill Count Ortega. You just have to do enough stuff to break down the infrastructure around him that he's defeated. I like that a lot. 
Yes. Because it, it allows for a non-linear path to finish the game, to complete the game. It's also very cool. hairy. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, even that, uh, with Harry himself, his special talent is every time he draw or discards a card, he uh, can move one of the obstructions or advantages around the board. So, like, for example, uh, if we had the ability to remove obstructions at ranges one through three, but the obstruction was at range four, Harry could just discard, move the obstruction to range three, and then on the next player's turn, he could remove that obstruction which is how Harry plays. First couple turns, Harry does nothing but discard. And then at the end is when he, Harry has obviously the most awesome attack abilities as well. (laughs) But it's such a Harry thing of, if you read the books, he spends 50 chapters getting his ass kicked. And then at the end, he just blows everything up. (laughs) The same thing with uh, some of the other characters, you know, Butters is very focused on investigation and his combat abilities are minimal. Uh, On the opposite side, the alphas very good at combat, but they're not heavy hitters. A lot of their abilities were built around, you know, being uh, the first strike in battle or, you know, being able to follow up with uh, with another person's attack. You know, they're werewolves. You know, they hunt as a pack. They, they have that pack mentality. Molly Carpenter is absolutely broken. She's the coolest character in the game <laughs> because, you know, Molly is this wild child of a magician still learning her powers. So her special abilities involve being able to copy other people's special abilities. It's so fun and so dynamic that it never, even when we were playing the same game, like the same book with the same characters, it did not feel the same because it's the way things interact changes from game to game, hand to hand, character to character. Like I I got so much out of this small four game play test that I've been raving about it to anybody that'll listen. I had backed it before the play test, which is how I knew about it. But after actually getting my hands on the game and playing it, I can't recommend it enough. How much interaction is there with you and the other players? And is that interaction actually not, not forced, but for lack of a better term, you know, how much of it is forced that you need to work together or can you just, is everybody pretty much playing their own strategies? Oh no, it's a hundred percent mandatory to work together because oh. like I said, you're, you're working from a shared pool of points to spend. Right. So if I want to do a really good, cool investigation, but the player after me wants to do a really cool attack, we might not have enough points to do both. One of us is going to have to sacrifice something to help the other. I'm sorry, but that makes a lot of sense, and I really like that because it really holds in line with the the way that they handle stuff like that in the books. That's mm-hmm. so cool. Yeah, Harry, Harry can't solve anything by himself in yeah. any of the books. Harry is not – Yeah, he's really powerful. He's really smart, but he cannot accomplish anything on his own. Even in the first book, he needs Michael. He needs Murphy. Yeah, I hope smart was in quotations. <laughs> <laughs> air quotes <laughs> he has he has his areas of expertise <laughs> how much of a difference is there playing different characters it completely like i said uh, the two i played specifically were butters and the alphas which are polar opposite characters butters is very much built around solving cases and helping other people at the table with his knowledge whereas the alphas like i said are very combat focused but not they said Harry can one shot things like no problem. He's that powerful. The alphas can't, but they can really work with other players to do heavy amounts of damage over time. Okay. Like, there's so much involved, like even as, as far as deciding which player goes first, like there's no rule says, OK, Harry oh. has to go first or, you know, the player on the left has to go first. Like just as a group, you decide who's going to go first based on you know what you need to do. Like Removing those obstructions from the board are always high priority so who can get those off the quickest and like in the rules like table talk isn't just encouraged it's required but as it's said in the rules you can't say numbers so like if i have an attack that does four damage i can't say oh i can do four damage to that enemy it's i you know i can i can take that guy out or you know i can weaken him so there's still i mean it's pretty much social contract of not saying yeah. I can deal four damage. Like, we even found ourselves slipping at points, but it, it, there's just so much communication. Like, I played with four people I'd never met before, and it was an absolute blast. How long were the games on average? Once we knew what we were doing, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. That's fast, actually. 
Yeah, but I, oh God, the last game, because, uh, what was it? Full Moon, not an easy deck to play against, because remember I said, to win, you need more cases solved than there are enemies remaining. Full Moon, there's three cases and five enemies, which means at the very least, you have to solve one case and kill everything or solve two cases and kill four of them, like bare minimum to win. So it was an absolutely brutal first game. Like we didn't even come close, but the second game we were doing really well, but even as well as we were doing, we had to go to the showdown. The showdown is once you as a group have decided there's no more turns to make, you know, everybody's activated their abilities or you don't want to pay the fate cost to pass, you know, something like, or you can't pay the fate cost to pass your turn. Uh, It enters the showdown, which is, you pay, you know, out of your remaining fate pool, if you have one, to attempt to kill an enemy or solve a case that you've already worked on. So if there's no hits on an enemy or clues on a case, like, that's out of the showdown. So what we had had, we had solved two of the cases and killed three of the enemies, which means we still had two enemies left. So that, at that point, it was a draw, which means we had lost. So what we had to do was kill the last enemy in the showdown it had i want to say six out of eight hits on it so all we needed was two hits by spending our fate dice we automatically had two hits but we're rolling six dice so we could very easily take away those two hits if we rolled poorly we out of those six dice we rolled two blanks two pluses and two minuses which was just enough to solve the case in the showdown, which, again, is such a Dresden thing. Yeah. Very rarely does Harry Dresden just obliterate an enemy. It's always down to the skin of his teeth, the very last moment, the last-ditch effort where he manages to survive and you know, defeat the bad guy and move on to the next. It, it, it was such a fun experience. All right. Awesome. Well, I like I said, I backed it. For anybody who's interested, there is well, they're they're looking at sixty nine hours now, and they're at four hundred and thirty five, let's say, thousand. They did announce <laughs> their last backer tier and or a reward tier at four hundred and fifty thousand. So I'm gonna put money down that they'll make it. Yes, it's, it's oh, a yeah, pretty foregone right. conclusion at this point. And it's an app. They're going to be doing an app that you can put on, I think they said either iOS and Android. It's, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, it's already it's being worked on, but they're saying that this is just going to push it over the edge. And uh, Yeah, they're, they're saying you're not, you're not paying for the app. The app is going to happen one way or another. This is just giving it more funds early on in its development. And as a reward, you're going to get all the corresponding dlc for the app for free that's awesome freaking awesome and it's, it's also at the point with their backer rewards if you live in the u.s it's free shipping yeah sadly. and anywhere else you're getting ten dollars off the shipping yeah which is going to help because freaking shipping is pretty expensive when it's going from the states to canada or mm. for our overseas folks yeah i, I backed it at the 69 dollar tier which is the base game of 39 dollars and all three expansions at ten dollars each it's they said the 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 content is there for the money you're putting in. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's after you were telling me that as well that I was like, okay, yeah, it's definitely worth it. And I just kept it. <laughs> I ha- I've had the window up, the tab, <laughs> since I found out about this and I've been watching it go. It was reminding me very much of like Hex. And so I backed it today and I'm anxiously looking forward to playing this. I also appreciate that there's not like a thousand different tiers of you trying to decide what yeah. you want. It's yeah. do you want the base game? Do you want the expansions? Where do you live? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I like that too. I, uh, I also like the fact that I got a confirming text while Vince was in the uh, discussing of the game, <laughs> confirming that my my local store will be uh, be uh, having those in stock. So, yay. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. One of the other games that came out recently was one that I've heard nothing but good things about so i decided to look at it and i i haven't gotten too far in but i have played a number of games and i know i'm really digging it now joe did you actually pick up uh duelist did you try oh, yeah. it okay and yeah it's, it, I've, only, I've only played a couple games but i've been watching people play it actually for the last few weeks what do you think of it it is combining everything I like about games like Hearthstone and Magic the Gathering with everything that I like about Final Fantasy Tactics. Yeah, I actually exactly. really, really enjoy this game. Yep. 
So if for those of you that don't know about it, Duelist, it's a competitive strategy game that focuses on tactical combat inside of like an arena almost. And it instead of building just a deck, you're building a squad. Um, it's 1v1 battles. It's online. Uh, multi, it's online play match. Uh, it's in re- its turn based combat, which is really kind of cool. And each of your cards has different effects. You have like a general card, which represents sort of like the leader of your squad. Um, they have special abilities that can either, you know, do damage, summon minions. Uh, they have the option to attack other generals or attack uh, minions directly. And then you can have other members of the squad, whether they're little minions, mythical creatures. Uh, you can also set up traps that you can set up walls as if you want to put up like a labyrinth for things that you have to funnel like you have to be funneled through it's it's there's a surprising amount of complexity and the interesting thing to me and and i don't know if you found this as well when you're playing the games last less than 10 minutes yeah they're actually fairly fast yeah and that's and that's really cool and each one is uh it's so it's very fast paced and it's got a simple winning objective and it's you have to reduce the enemy general's health to zero before they burn you down it's a very simple concept uh we've seen that in every other type of game that you know card game magic all the other ones but i thought that was really kind of nifty i like too that there's also different factions so it's not just sorry go ahead no i said yeah i was agreeing yeah so the different factions all have like unique sort of flavors to them Uh, i'm gonna go through them real quick and i'll draw a couple analogs to uh, for lack of a better analogy, magic, since that tends to be the one most people are familiar with. Uh, you have the Leonar, the Leonar kingdom, which is sort of like you're blue and white, you're good guys. Um, they're very tanky, but they're very, very slow. So you have a lot of high hit point creatures, a lot of high hit point stuff, a lot of defensive capabilities. But against a faster opponent, you're probably not going to be able to get to them as you would sort of if you were just like average massive uh, if anything golems. that's very much very close to magic the gathering artifacts almost massive golems <laughs> massive golems yes and living walls don't forget that one yes. not just golems but living walls which was very very interesting uh you have songhai which are you're fast and aggressive uh they specialize over high mobility uh, and as well as direct damage so think of like magic the gathering like mono red they're all about low like hitting you fast hitting you hard and hitting you often. You have Vitruvians, which are very, very creature heavy. Uh, they tend to have low stats, but have a lot of special abilities. Uh, this is very similar to magic, like mono green, where you can have a ton of like one ones rolling around, but each of those one ones can do something like summon another creature or summon another token. Tokens are a big thing in this game too, that I'm noticing uh, a lot of creatures when you use their ability or they get hit will spawn tokens which are basically other creatures that you can use in adjacent squares. And some of them let you choose where it goes. Uh, some of them, not so much. You have Abyssian, which are you basically, they're all about removing large threats and while doing so also generating small minions. It plays very similar to like a magic the gathering mono black deck where you have targeted creature removal. And then when you remove that creature, you get like, Oh, here's a little skeleton. Very, very similar. Uh, you have your magmar, which are your slow and purposeful uh, sort of like giant creatures. So you have these really slow minions, so they might be able to move one or two squares a turn. But when they get in there, they deal like massive amounts of damage. Or they just like sweep their arms across, which is really, really cool. You have the Venar, which are sort of like masters of the battlefield. Uh, there's a lot of minions that band together and a lot of walls and a lot of shaping of the battlefield. It reminded me a lot of playing like an old school mono white deck where it was all about like banding together and transferring damage and putting up shield walls. And then you have your neutrals, which are like your mercenaries, your, your creatures that don't have an allegiance to anybody. The complexity just in those, those factions is really, really cool because each faction right now has two generals each general has a special ability and has different synergies that play well with all these other cards. Not only do you have just creatures and spells, but you also have things like artifacts. What those artifacts do is you can actually play them to power up your general. There are also other cards that specifically target the other general's artifacts. So there's a lot of interplay between buffing and debuffing 
not only your general, but your opponent's general. And for a 10 minute game, there's a lot of strategy and a lot of decisions that you have to make. It's really, really cool. And I'm finding myself starting to get very engrossed in it. And this is a very dangerous thing. What I like is that it's not just the card game that's intricate, but also how it blends with the the tactical play. And because I do, I love tactical games like that. It blends a couple of things that I love so much. So you do have to be looking at the battlefield in the same way that you would a chessboard. Who's going where, what are the objectives and how can you trap or get rid of or block different of the minions so that you can get to the general or all kinds of different things like that. And then when you toss in the various, again, they have keywords as well, where you'll have characters that have minions have provoke or things like that. So now you got to deal with that on the, the, the play field as well. There's so much going on that it adds a lot of complexity to what it is you're doing. And not to like undersell what we're talking about here in its state. Now, this game just launched three weeks ago at the time of this recording. There's already over 350 units and spells and individual cards that you can build your decks out of. And these are 40 card decks. So it's very similar, very similar size to like Hearthstone where it's, you know, 30. But it's the, the amount of possibilities you have six factions, almost 400 cards. There's so many different interactions. And the best part is, and and this made me really happy. It's free to play. Yeah. Like that's a big thing. Like they put a lot of love into this. I would have gladly paid money for this. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those types of games where I was a little worried because of the art style initially, because again, I'm not always a fan of the old eight bit style kind of thing, but this does it so well. And it just looks cool, not just on the playing field, but each of the quote-unquote cards as well look really nice. It's a slick, futuristic style using an old 8-bit character style for the animations. And then you have an anime style for the cutscenes or cinematics, different things like that as well. So all in all... The style of the game, the graphical appeal of it is just amazing. I, it's a fun, fun game. I thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah, it's well worth your time if you haven't if you haven't really heard about it, but you like card games, you like tactical games, you have nothing to lose. It is a rather small download, actually, surprisingly. Very quick to set up, and getting into a game takes no time. And you can do PVE stuff as well. There's different quote-unquote quest things that they put in for... They give you a challenge for the day of what to do. So you can actually be earning the in-game currency and earning cards as well that way. So, again, great game. Highly encourage you. And then there was an update to Armello. This is a game that we talked about some time ago when it was first coming out. Actually, just before it came out. And it is still a game that I enjoy playing. It is still a game that lasts, in my opinion, its only downfall is how long each game lasts. I I feel it lasts way too long. Even if you even if you're playing against AI and you shorten the all of the AI interactions so that you're not actually watching them doing their combat and everything but it just kind of cuts through really quickly to the end results. Even with that, it takes a while to play. If you have the time though, I still feel it's an incredibly rewarding experience. Now with patch 1.3 that just came out and they're calling it the lock and key patch, they introduced some different elements, especially to try to encourage people to play multiplayer with other other actual people. And by completing online multiplayer games, you're rewarded with either chests or keys. And then when you match them up, you can get from within the chess four different rarities of dice. So you can get either common and common, rare or epic dice. And they were showing off some of the, the dice. Again, this is not a huge deal, but because the dice are actually such an integral part of 
the game, it, it is a nice thing. And it's kind of cool to give you a little bit to, to work towards as well. And because they just integrated the marketplace into the game as well, you can just buy them or you can sell them or you can even trade up with a transmogrify feature that they introduced as well if you're getting too many of the lower end ones kind of thing. So they're really working at putting in elements that are going to make it a lot more appealing to play with other people. They're looking at doing these dice collections as ongoing collections where there's going to be different ones based on the season and whatnot. Like right now it's the Wiles, Wiles Bounty collection. So once that's gone, that's it. They're gone. And then they're going to move on to the next collection. So it will keep people hopefully coming into the game. I, I would like to see them do the same thing with the cards that are part of the game as well and introducing new packs for those. I think that would be even more fun because those actually influence a lot more of the actual gameplay. Like they were saying how they've decided now that your followers are free. You don't have to pay gold. And that's fairly big because you're using your gold for a lot of other things and the followers have a huge impact in, in gameplay. So if they were to start putting out again more cards that are introducing different followers and things like that, that's fairly cool. And then they've also introduced increased difficulty, they call it the Matter King, where there can be at least eight perils on the board each dusk. So again, it is something wherein they're actively working on improving the game, adding things and trying to get people to keep playing it. And I, and I really do appreciate that. You know, I got the email the other day. One of the games on your Steam wish list is on sale. Oh, yeah? And it was that one? <laughs> yeah. It, not that I don't think it's worth the money, but, you know, I'm just trying not to spend as much right now. Not to mention the fact that I have enough games already <laughs> that I'm not playing. But it, it's... I'm not playing it, but not for any reasons having to do with the game itself, because I really want to. <laughs> Again, the only downside that I see with it is the time investment. For mm-hmm. me, that's the only one. If they could find a way to introduce a new a new gameplay, keep the existing one, just introduce a new one where you greatly shorten the game length, I think that would be ideal. That would be phenomenal. And actually, I'd play it all the time if they did that. Because as it is now, you need to set aside a pretty big chunk of time to go through a game. Which, I mean, that's not a huge deal. It's not me. a, yeah. As, as long as you can save partway through and come back to it later. Yeah. And then we also saw some updates for Hex. Like I said earlier, they did put out with their last patch, the Primal Dawn set, which has got some freaking awesome cards. But what I liked is that they're also now working at having events, which, I mean, we're used to seeing this in MMOs and, and other other games and here now they're having events throughout the year so that again it encourages you to play either the pvp or the pve stuff so what just is literally finishing up today recording on the 16th and it ran from may 2nd to the 16th and that was a feast of abundance and it's basically your typical springtime event kind of thing and they they put their own lore around it, so it's not just, you know, out of nowhere. It makes sense in context of the game and that world, and I, I really like that. And then just for logging in during the event, you got a sleeve, the Cherry Songbird sleeve, which is actually a beautiful artwork sleeve. And then if you PvP'd, if you did a tournament during that time, you got a Cherry Songbird card which is a 2-3 two, 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 flight, and then once per turn when you gain health, it gets plus 2, plus 2 that turn. Great card for a white deck that gains a lot of health. Coincidentally, like one of my best that I run through the Frost Ring Arena with just to... to if by best, win. you mean most broken. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you did PvE stuff during this time... Uh, which was specifically if you did, if you finished any of the dungeons in the campaign, you had a chance of winning either a card, a legendary card, or some of the equipment that goes with said card. And this is, again, a Simeon's Bounty. And like the legendary one, you create 
a whole bunch of cards, five cards that you can put in your deck. And they're all zeros in terms of their cost. So when you get them, it's free, awesome. And they give you a ton of stuff, be it you draw one or two cards, you gain some health, you can gain some charges. And then if you use the equipment that comes with it, you can insert more into your deck and or just make them that much more powerful. And again, you got chances of winning those just from running the dungeons. So, And it was fairly, you got quite a bit. Like I ran some dungeons on my characters and just throughout the day I ran a whole bunch of them and I got... I believe I got two or three of the legendary cards plus the two equipment. One is a, an uncommon and one is a rare, and I got several of each. So it wasn't very hard to get, but it was nice because now I have these very specific cards that you won't be able to get otherwise unless you pick them up in their auction house, which there are a ton in the auction house now. But it, again, goes towards keeping the game alive active and very much changing with time by continually adding these things and not just by adding them in terms of sets that come out but also these events that encourage people to do not just the tournaments but also the pve stuff as well and Mm -hmm. i again kudos to them i think that's fantastic Lastly, Joe found a game a while back, and he sent it to me, and yet again, another Kickstarter, although this one I'm a little worried it might not go through, even though they're not asking for a lot, and that was Hearts Blazing. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting one. There's there's this kind of trend of collaborative storytelling games that have been starting to come out for over the last few years. Uh, Taikaido, uh, there's one actually called Storyteller, there's another one called Fable. Uh, And they all revolve around cards, and it's about creating an interactive story with you and all the other players around you. Here, when you're talking about Hearts Blazing, Hearts Blazing is a uh, casual story game that, you know, is supposed to be aimed at three to five players. And it's supposed to be uh, a card game revolving around creating episodic fiction. It's interesting. It does supposed to be taking about 90 minutes for a game, which is kind of big for a card game. But you basically pick a protagonist, you then get a like a plot or a, um, a setting style deck and you sort of bid cliches based on your character to try to capture keywords associated with your motivations to sort of build a story. It's hmm. it's intriguing. I'm not sure how it's going to play out. Uh, that's if the game actually, you know, is a thing. Right now they have 15 days to go and they're about halfway through their goals. But I'm, I like this, t- this style of game. I, I like where you and other players are sitting around a table telling a story together. And what you're basically bidding for here is the right to tell the next part of the story and then ultimately how that story ends. The only thing I don't like about it, and, I, and I've said this before, is I don't like the fact that there is a sort of a point system to have a definitive winner, even though they say many, many times throughout their videos that it's about telling the best story. But then why do you have a point system? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that that's the part that, that confuses me because like games like Taikaido. Uh, Taikaido is a great, great example of a collaborative storytelling game. It's... There's a, a board, a tracker, but you are collecting cards of events uh, that tell a story of your character's life. And it's all about these characters sitting around the fire at the end of their life, telling the story of their life. And, you know, who had like the most interesting and in, in sort of intricate story. Same with Storyteller or Fable, where you're working to build cards together and chain them together so that you like you want to tell the next part of the story but that's it. There's no like winner. It's just it's a collaborative effort to just tell this really interesting story all the way around. So it's it's kind of somewhere in between. And I think calling it a casual storytelling game while it has a, a point system is a little bit out there. Have you uh, heard of a game called Fall of Magic? Uh, no, I have not. Definitely check it out. It's it's a gorgeous game. Like the, the game board is actually like a cloth scroll map. It's it's exactly that. It's entirely collaborative storytelling, but, you know, there's no winner once you get to the end. It's just, you know, you have, you know, your characters and your stats and your objectives and whatnot that lead you down the storytelling path. But at the end of the day, if you told a good story, everybody wins. Oh, sold already. 
<laughs> All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you very much for joining us. Everybody in the audience, thank you for joining us. Of course, you can find us on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time at ForTheLore.com slash live. Of course, you can find the show notes at ForTheLore. I'll be putting some of the links uh, from some of these things, be it the Kickstarters or that presentation in the show notes, so you'll want to check that out. You can find us on Twitter at ForTheLore or individually, Joe is Lugers at J, Vince is Simodian, and I am Zen Buddhist. You can leave us your thoughts on iTunes and Stitcher, and with that, we will talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to For the Lore. Each week, the show is broadcast live on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. Stop by forthelore.com slash live to join the conversation and have your thoughts discussed on the show. If you'd like to hear more from the guys, check out Comic Book Informer, a weekly podcast from Vince and Roger, as well as Popcorn Ronin, a bi-weekly movie, TV, and anime podcast. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. That's all right, mama.